this evening what I want to do is look at 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 1 through 7. So 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 1 through 7. And let me pray for us before we read God's word here together tonight. Father, we do pray that you would open your word to us this evening, that you would show us wonderful things, that you would set us up for what will be the rest of this series as we look at this life of this great prophet, and pray that you would teach us, your servants, what it is that you desire to see in us and from us, and what you desire us to know of you. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. First Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As I said, we're going to embark on a a little series here on the life of Elijah. And what I want to do this evening, uh, we'll we'll look at these verses, but more at a high level. I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to see throughout the, the life of Elijah so that we might see kind of the lay of the landscape here in 1 Kings. And so I want to look this evening at these seven verses as kind of our jumping off point. I want to to look at three things this this evening. One is the nation, the nation. The second is the prophet, and the third is the living God. So the nation, the prophet, and the living God. That is the setting. That's the environment of what we're going to see here over these next weeks. First, the nation. This is the setting for everything that is going to happen from here on out. There is wickedness in Israel. The nation of Israel has descended to utter depths. If this was a movie, the movie would start out with a black screen and there would be shrieks that you would hear coming across the TV screen and you would know that this is going to be a dark movie. And that's the setting that we're in. I want to orient you just a little to what is occurring in this passage. First Kings is a book that will detail the rise of Solomon and the reign of Solomon in chapters 1 through 11. Then when we get to chapter 12, you have the division of the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel will 
split into two different nations. You will have the northern ten tribes that will split off, and they will name Samaria as their capital, though they will have places of worship at both Dan and Beersheba. And that northern kingdom will be called Israel. The southern kingdom, which will be made up of Judah and Benjamin, will still have its capital in Jerusalem, and that southern kingdom will be called the kingdom of Judah. As we go through 1 Kings, 1 Kings will detail uh, both of these different nations and the different kings that arise in them. But what Elijah's ministry is occurring within that northern kingdom in those ten northern tribes. And what we see is happening in these ten northern tribes in the nation of Israel is that wickedness has gripped it uh, through and through. In fact, in 1 Kings, we will see that there is a detailing of sin and there's a detailing of idolatry. There's a detailing of the nation walking away from the worship of Yahweh and, and running headlong into the worship of Baal. They are looking more and more like the nations around them and very much unlike the people of God. And it will finally, ultimately end in their deportation. When we get here to 1 Kings chapter 17, it's been 58 years since Solomon's reign ended. So there have been 58 years, and during those 58 years, there are seven different kings that have reigned in the northern tribes in the kingdom of Israel. And every single one of those seven kings was absolutely wicked. There's not an exception among them. They are worshiping false gods. They are leading the nation into worshiping false gods. They have abandoned the law. They are looking more like the nations around them. And they've forgotten, in essence, their covenant-keeping God. And so when we look at the environment, it's a spiritual wasteland. And we see the depths to which it has descended when we read about Ahab. Ahab has now risen to the office of king. And in the very preceding passage to chapter 17, in chapter 16, we read about Ahab. And Ahab is a wicked beyond wicked king. He marries a foreign pagan wife and he begins serving and begins worshiping the Baals without restraint. And his administration will begin an aggressive campaign of erecting altars and changing the laws in Israel and, and leading all of the people in the nation to worshiping Baal. And we'll read this in chapter 16, verse 33, this scathing statement about Ahab. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's the scene. Wickedness has gone off the charts. But that leads to our second point, the prophet. There's a prophet that is sent by God. A man after God, Elijah. It's here in chapter 17 that we first meet him. In these verses here, he is a man of faith and a man of righteousness for the ages. And to me, that seems just like God. It's during the reign of the most wicked of kings that he raises up the most striking of prophets. 
He's called Elijah, the Tishbite we see here. He appears out of nowhere. We don't know where Tishbe is located at. We don't have any evidence of that place. In fact, we know nothing about Elijah. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know what their vocation was. We don't know anything about the rest of his family either. He just appears out of nowhere. And yet what we do know about him is that his parents must have been God-fearing people because of how they name him. They name him Elijah. Elijah, my God, is Yahweh. And so this man, whose name is my God, is Yahweh, is now appearing on the scene in the midst of this wickedness with a wicked king that is taking wickedness in Israel to the nth degree. I love how Alexander White, he's an old Scottish Presbyterian pastor that ministered in Edinburgh and the previous century, he spoke of Elijah this way. He said, the prophet Elijah towers up like a mountain in Gilead above all the other prophets. There's a solitary grandeur about Elijah that is all his own. And it's true. This grandeur of a prophet, this prophet of prophets, that is kind of the example before all of the other prophets, who will even stand on that mount of transfiguration with Jesus. It is he who appears on the scene and who appears and speaks to Ahab here. We're told that he goes before Ahab, this wicked king, and he announces to him a coming drought. Ahab, this king of all of this land, and here comes this man from out of nowhere who has no pedigree, who has no prestige, who has no position, And he's going to speak in the presence of this wicked, evil king. And he's going to speak with boldness. He's going to speak with boldness for God. It's interesting to me, at least, that Elijah is often identified throughout 1 Kings as, quote, the man of God, end quote. He's the man of God. When the widow speaks to him in verse 18 of the same chapter, as we'll see next week, she says, what have you against me, O man of God? In verse 24, she says, now I know that you are a man of God. When King Ahazai sends soldiers to bring Elijah to him, 2 Kings 1, they cry out to him, O man of God, the king says, come. In fact, he's called man of God four times in that one chapter. Here is a man in a faithless generation who is a man of God. And there's much for us to learn, I think, from Elijah. And I want us to see that over these weeks. And I want us particularly to pull some of these things out this evening so that they kind of sit upon your mind and upon your heart as we go through these weeks ahead over the semester. James will pick up Elijah, when he's writing about Elijah uh, in the book of James, and he will say this in chapter 5 of that epistle. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that, he might, that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on, on earth. James is saying, Here, here's a man that has a nature like ours. 
In the midst of a wicked generation, he, he's appearing out of nowhere, but it's not as if he's some angelic being. It's not as if he's from another world. He's not a different class of species. He's just like you and me. He had flesh like you and me. He had organs like you and me. He was fallen like you and me. He had a spirit like you and me. I think often we think Elijah doesn't seem much like us. He could call down rain. He could call down fire. He could make oil flow. He could outrun a horse and a chariot for 17 miles. He brought back people from death, and he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And yet, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So where does strength come? for a man like this and a generation like this? How does a man with a nature like yours and mine in the midst of a wicked fallen people stand boldly before a king and speak on behalf of God? I'd suggest three things, Mark Elijah, in this text and in the text to follow. And I want you to think about them as we go through this series. One, his passions yielded. His passions yielded. Two, is his prayerfulness. And three, is presence. Passion yielded, prayerfulness, and presence. Passion yielded. Elijah was a man of strong passions. We see this throughout his life, throughout the text, as we'll see in the In the weeks ahead, he does not hesitate here in our text. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You can sense the passion as he speaks before this king. There's no slackness. There's no apologies here. This is standard fare for Elijah. He's a man that seems to feel and to feel deeply. There's almost no scene in which Elijah, we see Elijah in the Scriptures in which his strong passions do not come out. He is in my mind kind of the Peter of the Old Testament, or maybe rather it's better to say Peter is the Elijah of the New Testament. It's just always on the surface with him. We see highs and we see lows. He does hardly anything without passion, whether that's praying or preaching or crying. But it isn't simply passion. Because Ahab was also a man of passions and of great passions. We see that throughout the accounts of Ahab. But Ahab is a man of unsanctified passions. There's no godliness restraining Ahab's passions. He's driven here and there by whatever the circumstances are, whatever he feels most fully inwardly. Whereas Elijah is a man controlled by the Spirit. Ahab tends to be controlled by his wicked wife Jezebel. Remember entering the pastorate and a, a mentor pastor, an older pastor said to me once, he said, um, He said, Jason, those who love you the most will often be those who later despise you the most. That's a a pretty negative view to have uh, of people. 
And yet there's a lot of truth in what he said. I found it to be very true. People have great passions. They love fervently and they hate fervently. Their passions are strong. They can be strongly in favor and quickly become strongly opposed. So men and women of strong passions are some of the greatest servants in the kingdom. They are also some of the most disruptive. What's the difference? Whether those passions are sanctified and whether they're directed. Elijah is a man of passions yielded. And that's what sets him apart. Here's what a man filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, can affect in a sinful, evil generation. He isn't on some other plane. He is just like you and I, as James says. A man or a woman whom the Spirit rules and directs their passions is an individual who is a mighty instrument in the hands of God. And Elijah is such a man, yielded passions. Next, notice that Elijah was a man of prayer. He prayed earnestly. Oh, to take all of that passion that some of us are marked by and to turn that into passionate pleading in prayer. He's a man of God because he's first a man of prayer. James will tell us that it was for three and a half years that it did not rain on the earth. Jesus will the same thing in John 4 when he's talking, or Luke 4 when he's talking about Jesus, he, or about Elijah. He will say it was for three and a half years. And yet, if you look over at 1 Kings chapter 18, you see there in the very beginning, after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Therefore, it's very likely that Elijah was praying, many commentators think, for six months before he ever approached Ahab. For six months. Elijah's the man sent because Elijah was the man prepared. He knew God. He spent time with God. Those most able to run for God have a common trait. They have most been on their knees with God. And few are greatly used by the Lord who do not know what it means to wrestle with the Lord. Prayer is always the path to fruitfulness. Always. The more we grow in God, the more we find ourselves dependent upon God. And so Elijah prayed earnestly, James says. Before he even went to Ahab, he was a man of prayer. A man just like us, with all the frailties that you and I have, all the weaknesses that we have, but he was a man of prayer. Say so what I've said to you many times before, that I think if you and I knew what our prayers accomplished, we would struggle to ever get off our knees. Third, Presence, passions yielded, prayerfulness. The third, Elijah was a man who understood presence, understood the presence of the Lord. He saw life through the lens of God being active and alive and present. That's how he begins this entire discourse when he approaches Ahab. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, this God lives. 
But he doesn't just live. I'm actually standing before him. He sees me right now as he sees you right now as I'm speaking to you. He understood the presence of the Lord in the immediate. That's just some distant idea. James and Jesus point out that Elijah had been praying for this drought. It's occupied his prayer life. If that seems horrible to you that he would pray for this drought to occur, not for Elijah, because the wickedness of the people shocked him. He knew God to be present. And he knew that these acts that they were committing and this false worship that they were engaging in was a front to the living God who was present. And so he actually prays for a drought. He prays that there would be a famine in the land. A spiritual devastation they were reaping concerned him. They were forsaking the living God for a dead God. And Elijah could not simply shrug at such a living death. He knew that there are worse things than not possessing material and physical comforts. He could see that there was something more important, and that was the spiritual death that was occurring in his land, among the people. And so, he prays in the presence of God the hard prayer. He not only said the hard thing to Ahab, he had been praying the hard prayers before he approached Ahab because he knew the presence of God. There are many who want to say the hard things, but they aren't prepared to pray the hard things. Elijah was praying that the living God would work in his generation. And that's our final point, the living God. Elijah knows as he's praying that this drought would come upon the land, that there would be this famine upon the land, he knows that it's often when things are stripped away that people are led to the end of themselves. And that that would force the nation to look upward and to look to God. Fertile ground for spiritual fruit is where humbleness is present. And that's true in a nation, that's true in a people, that's true in a church, that's true in an individual life. Where there's humbleness, that's fertile ground for fruitfulness. And so he prays that the living God might work. So often when we are enjoying the land and the comforts abound, spiritual reflection seems more difficult. When the ease of life is removed, we find ourselves searching within and looking up in dependence. I often have told people as they're trying to help other people, it took me years to figure this out in ministry, is that, look, you can't help someone unless they want to be helped. It's just not a possibility. You can't help those that don't want to be helped. And so I found a constant prayer in my prayer life for people that are, I find are steeped in sin and they're gripped by it and humility is just not there. They're not ready as I pray, Lord, break them, but don't crush them. Break them. Bring them to the end of themselves. Bring humility so that it's fertile ground for fruitfulness. That's what 
Elijah's praying in the presence of this God who lives. I wonder, could it be that a nation like ours that has been fat and happy with creaturely comforts is being refined and broken before our eyes so that there might be a revival in our land? Could it be that this is our sovereign God working in this country that is filled with false worship and idolatry? Now, the United States is not Israel. We are not the people of God, but we are a people. And we are a people in need of revival, and we are a people in need of reformation. Elijah prays, and God brings physical drought to show the people their spiritual drought. He brings upon them physical hunger as the living God to show them their spiritual hunger for them, for Him. Could He be doing the same thing? With riots and pandemics and political unrest. And this would be a question I have for us. Are we brave enough to pray that He would? And are we brave enough to suffer through it if he does? There's something I was talking to one of you this week about. There's something, there are a lot of things I've learned going through this 2020, but one of them is surely this, is I don't think the church is ready to suffer. We're not ready. Well, that is one thing the Lord has made abundantly clear, at least in my eyes over these months. We're not ready. If we're going to pray for revival and pray for reformation, we have to be brave enough to pray for it and brave enough to suffer through it, no matter how it comes. It's something we must think through because the judgment God brings upon the nation of Israel in this text, it affects the remnant of the believers. I think what we do is we look at a text like this and we imagine there are two groups. There's Ahab and all the wicked people in the nation of Israel. And then there is Elijah. And so God brings the drought and he brings the famine upon the nation. And it's all the wicked people in Ahab that suffer while Elijah is led to the brook and he is fed and he is given water. But you know what? That's not all there was. Because we get to 1 Kings 19 and we find that there's a remnant of faithful people in the nation. And God wasn't feeding them by ravens. He wasn't giving them water to drink at the stream. They were suffering along with the unrighteous. Just as often the unrighteous are blessed alongside the righteous. And so if you and I are praying for revival and reformation, we have to be ready for what that might mean. Are we courageous enough to suffer with it? I don't know that we are. Living God is going to show He is unlike these dead gods. He commands Elijah to leave. He sends him eastward, and Elijah goes by himself to that brook Cherith. This is on the east side of the Jordan, so Elijah is no longer in Israel. This is not a small act on God's part. 
Elijah's a prophet, so even as there's no rain in the land, so there will be no word now of God in the land. God empties the land of His word. This is judgment. You want the false gods. You want them, and you want to worship them, and you want what they are offering to you. Fine. You can have it. I'm sending my prophet who has the word outside. You're on your own. He's disciplining the nation. He's wielding this rod of instruction. It's painful judgment, but a judgment meant to lead to repentance. They are worshiping Baal, who they believe to be the God of rain and fertility. Then let's see what this dead God provides. Or is God who actually causes the rain and causes the growth, He will hold all of it in reserve and He will provide it just for His prophet. This God can stop the rains. He can cause no fruit to be born. He can cause no crops to produce because He is the source of life. Elijah's is setting up the entire landscape for us for everything to follow as he begins here. Listen, this is the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the covenant-keeping God. But he's not just that. He lives. And this is so in stark contrast to what you are worshiping, what you are depending upon, what you are bowing your knee to. These are false, dead gods. He is living. And so, you know what? Let drought and famine come upon the land so you can see how dead your pursuit is. And this orients everything else. You want life, Elijah is saying, and God is saying, it comes from the living God. You want abundant life, it flows from Him. We find the same words of our Savior. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Why? Because he is life. Everything else you would plug yourself into, everything else that you would attach yourself to, it's dead. He's life. When the women go to the tomb of Jesus, they find the stone rolled away, and two angels appear, and they ask the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then they proclaim, He's not here, but has risen. He lives. The living God. And that orients everything. That life is to orient everything. We serve a living God. And all is to be seen through this lens. It's a living God who makes promises and then provides based upon His promises. If you and I were to look up the promises that they believed Baal offered to worshipers of Him, or we could do it with a myriad of gods. 
you would see that there are great promises, but there's not the provision. But God shows himself as the living God, a God of promises who always provides what he promises. And that's the scene you and I are to see at the very end here with him at this brook of Cherubim. The living God provides for him. He's not limited in his sovereign power. Even when times are the harshest, he's not necessarily the most distant. He's providing for Elijah in the wilderness because he promised to do so. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So what does he do? He drinks from the brook. And these ravens, they bring to him bread and meat every morning and every night. This is even better than the manna falling from the sky. You get breakfast and dinner this time. These ravens. These unclean animals bringing him meat. Unclean because they were scavengers, so any guess of what kind of meat the ravens were bringing to Elijah? It definitely wasn't grade A steak. That's for sure, but what God promises, God provides. So it may not always be what we expect as we expect it, but He provides. Because he's the living God. In a time where we live in the midst of wickedness, and we do, every generation is wicked in its own right. The world needs men and women of faith and faithfulness. Needs those that are Yielding their passions to the Spirit. There are men and women that are laboring behind the scenes in prayer. There are people that understand that God is always present. You're always living before His face. The wickedness around us is not lost on Him. The downgrades are not lost on Him. His people are not forsaken by Him. You believe all of that, and you live in light of that. You recognize that He is a living God, and so you're going to live for Him. Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. Maybe a little better form of most of us. But just like us. And he set an example before you, and we'll see that as we continue forward. Let's pray. Lord our God, we are thankful that you are not dead, but living. And even as we pray that these prayers go into the ear of a God who hears, who acts, who moves, and is willing all things. May we remember that we are always living before your presence, and that cause us to be a people of prayerfulness, that help us to yield our passions to you. 
even in the midst of wickedness, we find that there is a courage that marks us and a boldness that marks us and a faithfulness that marks us and a faith that marks us and a patience that marks us and a spirit that marks us and a humility that marks us because we know you and we have yielded ourselves to you. May this be true of us, may it be true of a generation of Christians, for your glory and honor and praise. In Christ's name, amen.